Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeffrey Tubin. Hello, everyone. Oh, here you are. Ladies and gentlemen. Cut to the chase. I, I, I thought that was an unusual... I haven't even said anything yet. That's for you. <laughs> I, I was looking down at my notes and I was thinking, that's an unusually long applause for me. I didn't really get that anyway. Um, hi, Tom. Welcome. Hey, Jeff. Good to be here. Um, okay, let's go back. You're from South Dakota. You grew up in a lot of different towns. You moved around in South Dakota. When you were growing up, did you say... God, it's great here. I want to stay. Or did you say, I want to get the hell out of here? I really did say, I want to get the hell out of here. I, uh, I wanted Bright Lights, Big City. Interestingly enough, Monday I'm going back to South Dakota because we're doing an hour on my 50th year at NBC. And I wanted to open there because as I got farther away from it, I realized that the values, the friends, the life, the kind of uh, environment which I grew up became very important to me in what I later did. And, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I've always felt all these years that I had a feel for Main Street because of the way I grew up. I knew working class families. My dad was a blue-collar, hard-hat, heavy equipment operator, genius. That If it had a motor, he could operate it. If it was broken, he could fix it. Uh, but he left school in the third grade to go to work in the middle of the Depression. And my mother was... Graduated from high school at 16, bright uh, and uh, loquacious, wanted to go to college. Cost $100 a year. No way could she go to college. That was the environment in which I grew up. And so I was always looking over the horizon, thinking I want, you know, bright lights, big city. I came to New York when I was 17 under an unusual set of circumstances. Let let me stop you there. Joe Foss. Yes. Who is Joe Foss? Well, I'll tell you the story of this. I... There was a famous, uh, you know, I wrote The Greatest Generation about World War II, and in part because I was raised in that culture. I was lived in an army base from my earliest memories on. And then I worked, uh, lived in a place that uh, the government put, put a town together in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota. I always say that's an oxymoron, nowhere in South Dakota, <laughs> the whole state. But everybody who worked there were working class and veterans of the war. And then we had, as governor of South Dakota, one of the most famous heroes of World War II, a guy named Joe Foss, who later became the commissioner of the American Football League. He was a Marine pilot who shot down, I think, 28 Jap Zeros and terrifically heroic. He became the governor. When I was in high school, uh, I was governor of something called Boys State in South Dakota, the American Legion program. And it was a big deal in, in that state. He came over to hear my inaugural address, and we got along very well. In the middle of that s- next summer, I was working in the worst job I ever had. I was working in the bottom of a rock quarry loading trucks with uh, limestone chunks. And it was about 112 degrees down there. And the girl that I was kind of doing that job for was not that much interested in me. And I got a call from the governor's office and saying, Governor Foss has been invited to be on a quiz show in New York. And he has to have a partner, and he's decided he'd like you as his partner. Now, think about that. You're 17 years old. So governor just of before, what year are we talking about? 1957. Okay. And I, so, so please can so you so tell, I, us, I, tell us about the quiz show. I go, to, I go to Rochester, Minnesota to buy a suit for the occasion, and they want to sell me a, uh, a seersucker. They said, this is what they're all wearing in New York right now. They want to sell me. <laughs> Searsucker suit or an olive suit. And I said, I got to have a suit in which I can graduate from high school and, and wear for four years in college. Bought the suit, gone on Northwest. Food in New York. I'll never forget it. Got off at LaGuardia. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm, I had an uncle who'd been in New York once or twice. He said, here's what you do. You, you know, you get in a cab and pretend like you know where you're going so they don't try to rip you off. <laughs> so I said, I, I got to go and, um, and, and I want to take the Queensboro Bridge. And so the guy starts talking to me on the way in. 
And he was, you know, we don't have these kind of cab drivers anymore. The guy was born and raised in Brooklyn. I was a big Dodger fan. We started talking baseball. God, he said, you kid, you're coming in so hot. He says, you know, last night I was up on the roof trying to get some sleep. Got rocks on the roof, so it's not easy to sleep. I took a six pack and it worked out okay. I remember the entire conversation. Came here, I was on a Friday night, stayed in a hotel in Midtown, and I met with the writers, and uh, you know, I was pretty nimble rhetorically, and they said, well, we're not going to have any trouble with you, it's going to be fine. Uh, and I went out right after that and walked all over Times Square trying to figure out the town, and the show was going to be live on Saturday night, uh, at, like at 6.30, it was, it was 7 o'clock, I guess. And so I got up early the next morning, I went down to the village, and... Uh, and I wandered all over. I wanted, I wanted to see where Carnegie Hall was. I want to walk by Saks Fifth Avenue, bought my dad a tie there. And then I went back and kind of rested up. The entire town, which I lived at this time, was on pins and needles. I mean, you know, a kid from Yankton going to be live on the two for the money. Sam Levinson was the uh, guest host that summer. Anyhow, Joe and I go, and uh, he, he was quite gregarious. And we both calculated the questions would be a lot about politics. And so they said, you guys are pretty good. Build in some laugh lines. We don't want to break the bank tonight. That's what they did. Because we could have just rattled through them. <laughs> so um, anyhow, I made 650 bucks, which is a big chunk of dough in 57. And walked out, and Joe said, what are you doing? I said, God, I'm supposed to go back tomorrow. I haven't seen anything. He said, call your parents. Tell them you want to stay one more night. He booked me a room at the Roosevelt. And, uh, and I'll see them on Monday. I'm going to be back in South Dakota. And I'll tell them it was my idea. So, in fact, I stayed until Wednesday or Thursday. I, you know, I did all the stuff. I went down to Cafe Wall in, in Greenwich Village. You know, I went to uh, I went over the Statue of Liberty. In those days, you could still walk up all the way into the crown. And what, the lasting impression I had at the end was, my God, I have walked everywhere, and my feet have never left the pavement. I couldn't walk 20 feet in my hometown and, the people, and my feet would leave the pavement. So it was a very heady experience for me. And at the end of it, I, I think I thought, you know, I could probably handle this at some point. You know, I'd like to come back here. So that's, that's what, that story. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to do when you grew up as a teenager? You know, I, people remember me saying, I want to be a correspondent. I, you know, I, 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 the, the quick shortcut to this, I moved from this real working class town to a slightly quite a bit larger town by South Dakota standard. It had 12,500 people at a college and had two radio stations and a really very, very good high school. And uh, I landed in that town and it kind of just took off. I, I was a jock, so after basketball practice, I had a radio show when I was 15 on the local radio station. At night, a teenage rock and roll show at the height of Jerry Lewis and Elvis. And it was a great thing to do, a great way to meet girls, among other things. Uh, and... I, you know, I paid a lot of attention at 5.30 every night to this new phenomenon on television called Huntley Berkeley. 15-minute show came on, black and white. We had a zenith black and white television. So I didn't see television until I was 15. There we'd sit down and have supper in South Dakota and watch Huntley Berkeley. And it was magical. You saw things you never expected to see in your own living room in South Dakota in these remote areas. Winston Churchill's death and uh, the big political stuff that was going on. And I kind of hung on every word that they were talking about. I uh, came out of high school a real whiz kid, and everybody had all these high expectations. I was an honor student at the University of Iowa, and I went right off the cliff. Um, I didn't flunk out, but I, uh, I didn't do very I was an outstanding ROTC cadet. I was the only freshman who uh, emceed one of the big spring events. But going to class was not a high priority for me in a lot of ways. And so I was wandering around, still paying attention to politics. And this, this uh, period went on for a couple of years. I, I didn't flunk out of Iowa, but I left. I went back to South Dakota, and I quit school. And I didn't really have a strong orientation. I kept thinking I was fooling people. And then this uh, young woman that I had been one of my closest friends in high school was kind of all everything. She never, uh, she never failed at anything that she set out to do. And she was going to school and doing all the right things. She was Phi Beta Kappa. She was Miss South Dakota. Uh, she was Queen of the Drake Relays. And uh, everybody adored her and admired her. And she wrote me the harshest letter I've ever gotten from anybody saying, you know, I don't even want you to come around and have a cup of coffee anymore. I mean, no one understands what's going on with you. You're ruining your life. Your parents can't are terribly disappointed. Your friends don't want to see you. Get out of here. So I took the letter and 
turned me around. And um, I went to work at a television station in Sioux City, Iowa, when I was 20 years old doing the weekend weather and the news and then staff announcing. And then I figured, well, wait a minute, I, I could commute to the University of South Dakota from here. So I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning and drive to the University of South Dakota, got my grades back in order and had a wonderful uh, uh, kind of patron of the head of the political science department was a kind of genius of looking out after certain students. And I, he could never figure out what was going on with me. So he called me in and he said, okay, here's what you're taking next semester. Here's the grade point you're going to get. And if you don't, I don't want to ever see you again. And I nailed it. And uh, I was sitting in the library one day and that young woman who had been my pal in high school and wrote me off came over and said, you know, I went too far. And I said, no, I had it coming. And she said, no, I, I went too far. I said, well, let's go over and have a cup of coffee and talk about it. One year later, we were married. And, uh, <laughs> and, and e- even more impressively, you're still married. F- 54 years later. Yeah. <laughs> and as Jeff, my friend, knows, and all my friends know, she's the star of the family. Yes, she's uh, <laughs> still. Indeed. Okay, so you're in Sioux City, Iowa. Do you like being on TV? I mean, do you, do you think you've found your life's work, or are you sort of on the fence? Well, interesting. I thought I was pretty good at it for a young guy. I took it seriously. The, uh, the guy who hired me uh, came to me at one point and said, ah, I think if you want to be a lawyer, that's a better choice for you. Um, because he didn't get the news business. I mean, he was a staff announcer. He thought entertainment was. And, I, and I, there was a wonderful guy who was running, uh, it was his first entry-level job. He'd gone to the Air Force, went to Northwestern, got a degree in journalism, ended up becoming a CBS News correspondent. His name was David Shoemaker. And uh, he said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, I've got to get a job. I'm getting married. He said, I think there's an opening in Omaha. And he got me to Omaha, and I got my first job there. It was a perfect entry-level position. I had a very uh, engaged news director, and they'd had a famous local anchorman who became the anchorman in Chicago. His name was Floyd Kelber. And uh, so they had a big reputation with Huntley Brinkley. So I, stories would break. I would be on Huntley Brinkley doing them. And I, you know, I learned a lot along the way. Two years there. And then Atlanta was the best station in the country. It was called WSB. It was the middle of the civil rights movement. And God only knows why, but the guy had heard about me down there, and he called me up, and he said, we have an opening on the 11 o'clock news. I thought it was a prankster. And uh, he said, we'd love to have you come down and take a look at it, and we'll take a look at you. And they hired me. And I, after the 11 o'clock news every night, I'm on my way to Alabama, or I'm on my way to Mississippi, or I'm on my way to somewhere in Georgia where all hell was breaking loose. And I was on Huntley Brickley a lot and on radio a lot. Got there in March and August of the same year, NBC said, let me, let me stop you there about in the South in the in the uh, in, in the civil rights movement. I mean, did you? What was it like covering those stories? Did you feel threatened ever? As a, as you know, yeah, I, journalists were not were sometimes in the line of fire. No, I I was fascinated by it for a lot of reasons. I'd left maybe the most segregated city in America was Omaha, Nebraska. Really, curiously enough, and we didn't think about it in that way. Omaha had a big black population on the Bob near... G- Bob Gibson, the great pitcher. We've talked about this, actually, on the near north side, Gail Sayers. They both went to high schools where there were no black teachers, no black coaches, no black administrators. Downtown Omaha, there were no black clerks in the, in the banks or in the department stores or waitresses. Completely segregated. And I was a... you know, When it came to civil rights, I was a warrior, and I would go around and... And, and challenge people on all this. I had a moment in the, um, I was a big advocate for the Civil Rights Bill, which was in play at that point. And in the newsroom, I was the only one for it. Everybody was uh, white and very conservative. One day, we were having a very intense conversation, me against eight other people. And we had one black employee in the, uh, in the station. And he was in a janitor, Bill. Bill would come through not saying he'd be pushing his broom and cleaning up and everything. And so I decided to risk it. It was like a warrior moment. I went and I threw my arms around Bill, and I said, Bill, you've been listening to this. What do you think? And everybody kind of was startled, because he never said anything. He put down his broom, and he said, well, Mr. Brokaw, I've got a grandson. I want him to have your job. I get clutched thinking about it. I want him to have your job someday. I don't want him to have a broom the rest of his life. And he went back to his job, and I turned around and said, I rest my case. And everybody kind of walked out of the room. 
So uh, that was Omaha. Then I get to Atlanta. It's different. The relationship between blacks and whites in the South is much different than it is in the North. They interact with each other in a lot of ways. They're in each other's, you know, the blacks are in the homes as domestics or cooks or other things or the babysitters. Uh, but, you know, they don't go to the front door and they don't date. And at the eighth grade, they go in separate directions. Uh, it was terribly threatening in a lot of these small redneck towns. I was with just a cameraman one day in a small town uh, about 50 miles east of uh, Atlanta. We'd heard that the county was under court order to desegregate its schools. So typically, the school board said, no, we're going to enroll the white kids in the next county, which is not under court order. So the news director said, well, you know, why don't you go over there in the morning and take a camera crew with you and just see what's up. So the uh, school buses pull up to take the white kids to the next county, and the black organizers in town had eight, nine, 12-year-old kids come out of their homes and try to get on the bus. And out of the woods came rednecks. I mean, these were rednecks. They were lumberjacks, and they were mean and strong, and they started throwing these little kids, you know, off the bus. I mean, pitching them off the bus. Got my cameraman there, and and then they realized we're there. And they turn on us, and and they grab my cameraman's camera away from him, and they're closing in on us, and I'm getting kind of uh, more belligerent than I should have been at that point. There's no way of getting reason out of it. And thank God there was a highway patrolman who lived in Atlanta and saw me on the news every night. Sure that he was a seg, but he, you know, he had some attachment to me. And he stepped in the middle of this scrum and he said, um, boys, I don't blame you for wanting to do this. You know, but he said, when you screw with the press, we've got a world of troubles. Just you can't take him out. You're going to get rid of him. And the county sheriff was there as well with a 12-gauge. And he turned the 12-gauge to me and he said, get out of town right now. He said, I'm going to be following you all the way to the county line. And so I got my cameraman, and we kept the film. And, uh, and I got in the car, and we drove to the county line. I made a radio report, went back to Atlanta that night. At 6 o'clock news, the news director said to me, I want you to go on the air and say to the citizens of Atlanta what you went through and what it's like to be out there. And that opened up the other half of what was going on in the South. A lot of white people just pretended like it wasn't happening. They would go home and they would, uh, and they would say it's a shame that it's going on, but they didn't, they didn't step out. You know, they didn't take a big step. Uh, any number of young people that I've talked to since then, Howell Raines, who became the editor of the New York Times, I think he never forgave himself for not speaking up when he was in Birmingham. So I went on the air that night and did this thing, and I said, and the rest of the country will see this. And they'll not make a judgment about Tolliver County. They'll make a judgment about everybody in Atlanta and everybody in the South who doesn't have the courage to step up about this. Flooded with phone calls. The night of Selma, I was, uh, my job was to transfer all the film and then have it fed to New York. I remember I was 27 years old at this point and had a wonderful uh, technician working with me. And uh, he was doing all the editing. And I'd say, Eddie, stop. Look at that. How can you possibly, possibly look the other way? And it would be cops beating up these guys, turning the dogs on the people. And our correspondent, Richard Voriana, got a fractured skull there. And he'd say, well, I think that, I think that they, I think they irritated the guy. I'd say, roll it back, do it again. i make him do it. And he finally looked at me and he said, it's wrong. It's just wrong. But... You know, it took a long time to get beyond that, and we're still not entirely out of it. So it was very instructive. By August of that year, NBC said, we want you to go to California and go to work for us there. And, and so uh, in 1960, um, well, actually 1965, I went to California. I was 25 years old. And, uh, and in 1966, uh, Ronald Reagan was running for governor of California. Pat Brown was uh, trying for his third term. The counterculture movement was taking hold. I was in, I'd fly up to, uh, from Burbank in the morning, up to the Berkeley campus and Mario Savio and the free speech movement would be going on. It was a very, very volatile time. And, uh, and we loved California. Gasoline was 30 cents a gallon. Uh, we bought a wonderful house in the, the San Fernando Valley for $42,500 and built one on the beach later for $110,000. I mean, you could, you could have a good life there. Did, yeah. did, did, in those days, when local, when you, you were working for the network, yeah, but yeah. out of KNBC, yeah. 
Did you think about the business? Did you think about is what are our ratings? What are our what are our um, you know yeah. is is the uh, you know how are we competing against you know KNXT and all that? We did, but uh, everybody that was doing local news wanted to be a network correspondent, and, uh, except Tom Snyder, who wanted to become Tom Snyder, which he did. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he was very very good at good it. at it. Yes. Very yes. very good at it. Um, uh, we had differences because of my attitude about being, you know, on the air and his attitude. But we worked him out, and we got along extremely well. When I view a big, complicated story and big political story, especially, and Tom could care less about it, but I would always sit down. He said, "Tom broke." I was here with the latest, and I'd always look at him and say on the air, "Well, Tom, as you know, <laughs> would break him up because he didn't care." But he was the most gifted guy I've ever seen. He really, he, such, he was he was in terms of just being on TV. He just loved it, and uh, he was very uh, kind of insecure off the screen. He had a lot of personality oddities, but if he walked into a room, he lit up the room, uh, just as he lit up uh, the television studio. Anyhow, most of us wanted to be what I became, and we wanted to be serious correspondents. We were serious journalists. Uh, I can't remember anybody that I worked with in those days who was just there to become a news announcer, you know, just read what was put in front of them. Everybody was out working the story in some way. So how did you become a network? I mean, you said they wanted to become you. How did you get from Los Angeles to New York? To where I am. Well, it, I... I started doing a lot of stuff for the network from there, and I was covering. I was in Chicago in '68 for the for the wild '68 uh, Democratic Convention. Uh, NBC would come out, and I, uh, I remember uh, in '66 uh, actually. I, I got off to a fast start covering Reagan and covering a lot of stuff, so they were, they were they had their eye on me to to come east. But they sent David Brinkley out in '66 to cover the Reagan race. Now, you got to remember, he was a demigod to me. I mean, here was David Brunkley, who was the most popular newscaster. This is before Walter. I mean, they were, a, 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 they were astonishingly popular. Chet and David got off an airplane one time in Las Vegas on the way back to New York because they wanted to go see one of the casinos. They had thousands of people out there to meet him at the airport. They were that big. There had never been anything like them before. David was very cryptic. So they said... Uh, David wants to be briefed on Reagan, and we want you to do the briefing. We want you to put together a reel of stuff, sit in a room with him, and then talk to him about what Reagan is really like and let him ask some questions. So, uh, you know, I was terrified, but I put together this reel, and David comes in and sits down. How are you? I hear good things about you. What is it that I need to see here? So I roll the tape. And uh, he said, is he a jerk? And I said, no, he's not a jerk, but he's been raised in the Hollywood bubble. He has a hard time dealing with the press and with uh, crowds that are not organized just entirely in his behavior. He's always on guard, always on guard, except when he gets up to give a speech. Then he nails it because the thespian qualities came through and he knew what he needed to do. Then he would retreat to being a star again. They put him in a van and they had people around him and he would drive to the next target. And then at one point, I said to him, um, his wardrobe has changed. When I first started covering him, he was Hollywood casual. He had slacks and a sports jacket and a pair of brown loafers. Then they made him into a businessman. He never shows up anymore without a blue suit and lace-up shoes and a white shirt. And we went through this whole thing. So that night, David is on the air, and I'm sitting back watching it. And he comes on and says, good evening, from California, where Ronald Reagan, a former actor, is now running for governor of California. He used to be seen around town in loafers and a sports jacket. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, the power I have. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good Brinkley, too, yeah. I, I gotta say. Yeah. So you, you, but you wanted to go to New York. I did, but I did, but I had a great life. Sounded like you had a good life. I had a great life in California. I was living on the beach. I was on the air all the time. My wife had, you know, uh, she had her own thing going on. And uh, and '68 Chancellor came to me and said, "You got to come east and be a grown-up, Broca. You just can't keep hanging out in California." That went on for a couple of years, and I would be brought east to to fill in on stuff. I covered the McGovern campaign. Uh, We had a Dateline show kind of show that. uh, I came back and hosted that for a while, and I'd scoot back to California again. And then in the summer of 1970, spring of 1973, uh, Dick Wald was running NBC, came, and he said, 
it's time. We've got to have a serious conversation. You, you need to come east. You, we need you to be uh, the White House correspondent. It was the beginning of Watergate, and uh, Dan Rather was a, uh, you know, was a very big presence for CBS, and they wanted me to come back and compete against him, in part because I knew a lot of the people in the White House. I knew Ron Ziegler earlier, and I knew Holdeman earlier, and, and there was a California crowd, and I was connected to them. And I'd been doing a lot of big political reporting in California, breaking stories and doing other things. So I went to my wife, who we had moved into this house on the beach. She took all the money that we had, which was $110,000. Think about it. I don't know how much the house is worth now, but we had just moved in. I said, yeah, I think we'll go to Washington. And so she looked at me like I lost my mind. And I came back and started working in that summer. And she came back from the, uh, you know, from the azure blue of the Pacific Ocean on the beach and the cool breezes and all of her friends went to Washington in August. I don't know if, how many of you have been to Washington in August. You know? yes, uh, and, the, and the rental houses were terrible. And I said, God, how do I get out of this? And so I said, well, we've got to go to New York for the weekend. I was doing the nightly news in New York on weekends. And I, I booked a suite at the plaza, and we flew up here. And the, in those days, the shuttles were filled with overweight white men in white shirts smoking. Yeah. And she was hating every moment of that as well. So we got to the plaza. And they had the violins going in the plaza court and everything. And it was air conditioned. And I had made arrangements. To, she said, well, maybe we can live here. <laughs> so then I, I, I went to Washington. And what, when you talk about competing against Dan Rather, what was it like competing against other journalists on television? I mean, you've done a lot of that over yeah, there. Yeah, I have. Well, Dan, was that was one-on-one. I mean, he, you know, he was a big, strong reporter. And he'd gotten off to a fast start on Watergate. My big advantage was that when I got there in the summer of 73, all hell was breaking loose. And as I later said, all you had to do was stand out the, outside the window of the White House and the stuff would fall in your hands. So I was getting big stories every night. Then I broke two or three big stories. And I got everyone's attention when I did that, including Dan's, I think. And we've remained friends over the years. Uh, and our wives actually play bridge together. I don't see them very often. When I say friends, I mean in a professional sense. There was never any hostility between us. You know, he was working really hard and good at what he did. And I, I like to think that we made each other better at what we did every day. But it was a chaotic time. I was in an airplane, you know, to Russia or uh, to he, the president was going to Miami on weekends or I was coming up to New York. I don't think my feet touched the ground for a full year until he resigned. And and when did you get the Today Show? Well, that came up uh, when uh, when Frank McGee died. They were doing kind of um, auditions within the NBC family, and I wasn't on the list. Uh, it was uh, Doug Kiker was one of them. Gary Cutley was another one of them, uh, and they were running him through there. And one of the senior executives uh, at NBC New York had been my boss in Los Angeles. And he knew that uh, I was kind of nimble when it came to ad-libbing, doing things, and, um, and, and rocking and rolling that today's show needed. So he said, well, you know, why don't we bring Broke up and have him do it? And I had a, just through a odd sort of circumstance, I had a really good week. Barbara and I got along. I didn't know her before that, but we got along immediately very well. And uh, the first day that I was there... On that Monday morning, um, I was also going to do nightly news that night and then a special report at 1130 that night. So she said, well, I've got Tom Broker in the White House. I said, yeah, I'm doing the Today Show here and I'll be showing and I'll be on Days of Their Lives at two o'clock this afternoon (laughs) as well. And she looks and said, he's got a sense of humor. And so it went like that. It went well. And at the end of the audition period for everybody, they came to me and said, we want you to do the Today Show. And I said, no way. I'm covering the White House. I'm covering Watergate. It's the biggest political story of my lifetime. And you make the host of the Today Show do the commercials. There's no way I'll ever do that. I'm never going to do that. And they said, oh, this big stakes, a lot of money. I said, fine, uh, give it to somebody else. I was not interested. I wanted to stay where I was. Well, at the end of three years, a year of Nixon and two years of Jerry Ford, they came back and said, okay, the commercial stuff is off the table. You can do a lot of political reporting from the Today Show. It's a very active time. You've got to do it because at some point down the line, you're going to do nightly news. You've got to do this for us first. We need you to do this. So I said, okay, I'll come do it under those terms. And, and how did anchoring compare with your 
other kinds of work in terms of your own well, preferences? I, it, was a, it was a big adjustment for me. I, Jane Pauley was brought out of Indianapolis in Chicago, just two years out of college, and she was a you know a ingenue, really, and I had never done this kind of program before. NBC was in a chaotic condition. We really didn't have anybody at home at the top. And Jane and I have laughed about it. I've said, we were a DOS boat of television news. <laughs> <laughs> they put us in this life raft and set us afloat. You know? And we had to paddle on our own terms. David Hartman was doing very well with the new form of morning show at ABC. Good very morning. well. And so the Today Show, for all those years, had been... Uh, no, there was no competition. They just put things on the air. But the second week I was there, I looked up and I saw on our rundown that we were going to have a harpsichordist in a gold gown at 7.20 in the morning. I said, I don't think anybody wants to watch a harpsichordist. But that's how they'd ever always done things. So we lost the lead in the ratings about a year and a half or two years into my tenure. And then Reagan was running for president. All hell was breaking loose in the world. And we got a new, uh, very... Uh, aggressive uh, producer by the name of Steve Friedman with the next generation came along and uh, he called me the Prince of News. He'd say, Prince, whenever there's something going on, you're going. And uh, so I went all over the world uh, for the Today Show on breaking news. And then I always thought the defining moment for it was I got a call from him at about three in the morning and he said, you know what's happened? I said, no. He said, John Lennon has been murdered. Uh, over on the west side. I said, oh my God, we have to do the first half hour. He said, we're going to do as many hours as they'll give us. If they give us five, I'll fill five. And so I went in and from seven until 10 that morning, we were on the air three hours of John Lennon's murder. We had wired the world. You know, we had the, uh, you know, the, the original studio hands working with them and everything. And it was breakthrough television. It was, it was a new generation of how to cover a story and what's important. And I got it at the end of that two hours. I went to him on a high five and I said, my generation would not have seen that in the same way. It was a big, important story, but you got it. This is a generational, terribly important cultural story, an iconic figure of our time. And you just flood the zone with it. And that's what we did. And then because politics became so hot, I was going off to all the primaries and about halfway. Uh, so that was, you know, it was the end of the Jimmy Carter uh presidency in 1979 we got the ratings back and we never lost them again we just kept them all the way through and but still in those days the pinnacle in television news was the evening Evening news the anchor nightly news and did you did you really want that job i did but i loved being a correspondent as much as anything and um and then you know the fate of the gods uh the all three networks were trying to find what the next generation of anchors were uh, CBS had picked Dan, uh, and, uh, and that meant Roger Mudd stalked out of their place. I was in line to do what I knew, and, uh, but I was willing to go become a correspondent for a couple of years, you know, to go abroad if necessary. But we're going to have to make a jump. And then Rune Arledge, who was the, uh, who was shaking up the industry in a lot of different ways. He was building ABC into a powerhouse. He was spending money. And he tried to get Dan. Dan had already signed. So he came after me real hard and said, you've got to be our anchor man." And it was nothing like being courted by Rune Arledge. It was a lot of money on the table. And he was taking you to great restaurants and calling you at home in the middle of the night. And NBC was in some chaos. And by then, Roger had come to work for us because we had an ex-CBS guy as our news president, Bill Small. I could kind of see where Bill Small probably made a deal with Roger that he was going to get to be the anchorman at some point. So I confronted him. I said, Bill, have you promised a job to Roger? Well, I, don't, I can't remember. I said, what do you mean you can't, can't remember? remember. <laughs> Slipped his mind. I said, but we just need to know because I have to make some decisions, and so do you. Roger, to his credit, came to me, and he said, I don't want to move to New York. Let's do it together. Uh, it turned out not to be. It was a very generous gesture, but it was not a good idea. Because, well, Huntley and Brinkley had done it. In yeah, that, but in they had way. different... David was willing just to do the Washington piece, and he was a different kind of guy than Chet was. Roger and I were very much alike. So you'd look at the two of us and say, why are they two guys doing the same thing? And for a year, it just didn't work very well. So at the end of the year, uh, Ruben Frank had to make a decision, and he decided to go with me. I'd been there the longest at NBC, and I was uh, more willing to get on planes and go places and, uh, and deal with the affiliates, which was important. Uh, Roger was outraged. He lost two big jobs. In many ways, he was the most gifted guy of my generation. 
but he wanted only on his terms to be the anchor man. So I got the job, and it was tough for the first two or three. CBS was on a roll. Peter had come back from ABC, from overseas to be at ABC, and the three of us were competing. Here's what worked for all three of us in a way that we had no control over. Satellite television suddenly became available. You could go anywhere in the world and have two suitcases that had satellite equipment in them. And we were all reporters, so we jumped on planes. And the world was coming apart, not only the Soviet Union, but China and the Philippines. And well, let, me, let me stop you there. Um, the fall of the Berlin Wall was perhaps the most dramatic right. single day of, of this whole period. And you, and you were there. But it had preceded, though, by uh, other events. Um, well, it was all, yes. Gorbachev, well, tell us, tell Gorbachev but, you know, had come to power. I got the first interview with him. That was a very big deal. Uh, Nelson Mandela had uh, been released from prison. We were all in South Africa. Uh, I'd gone to the Philippines because uh, Marcos's family was getting thrown out. That's a long way to go. And we were on the air constantly. So now uh, West Berlin is in, I mean, East Berlin is in chaos. And on a Monday morning, we had this really strong uh, foreign editor who came to me and he said, you know, there's not much going on here. Why don't you just go to Berlin and see what happens? We don't expect anything. So I thought, that's a good idea. And I, we didn't, I sneaked out on Monday night and, and the next day I was in Berlin and I could go into East Berlin in those days uh, without having a lot of trouble. That was a whole breakthrough for us. And my uh, producer uh, had arranged for me to interview the next day uh, Gunter Schabowski, who was the propaganda chief for the, uh, for the East. And the chaos continued. They were sending people out to Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was not happy with that because they were being jammed with all these uh, uh, German expats that were coming into their country. And uh, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the second day, Gunter Schabowski uh, calls this news conference uh, to, tell, to bring us up to date on, the, on what's going on. And we're all sitting there about half asleep. East German... Uh, journalists and a lot from the West, a lot from America, and I'm sitting back there with my crew. And about 5.15 in the afternoon, German time, somebody hands him a piece of paper and he reads it and he says, oh, the Politburo has decided uh, residents of the GDR can exit and return through any portal, this, um, he didn't use this exact language, of the wall that now exists. And everybody snapped up and I later wrote that it was like something had come from Venus and landed in this room. And my cameraman and his sound man both had grown up in Germany and lived with us all these years. And they were startled, and everybody started yelling at him, and he said, well, that's what they say, and he put the paper back in his (laughs) pocket, and he walked out. We had an interview with him that uh, my colleague had arranged, and I went upstairs with Mr. Schabowski, and she leaned her body against the door to keep other correspondents out. And I said, take that out and read it again. Took it out and read it again. Yeah, that's what it says. And uh, this is what I said. This means they can leave and they don't have to come back to the But if they they come back to it, he said, yeah, that's exactly what it means. That was being broadcast, it turns out, in East Germany. So I ran down the stairs. There were a group of my colleagues who were print guys, and they were reading a statement. I said, guys, it's open. This thing is open. And ran back, called NBC, and said, um, we had arranged in those days, which you, these days you can just do it in a moment's notice. Those days you had to put an advance order to get a satellite. And we had the only satellite coming out of Germany. And then we had, uh, we quickly got a crane to get a camera up at Brandenburg Gate so it could look down into the east. And I'm typing and doing updates with Gary Cutley on the air. And um, around midnight, Berlin time, I went out to the Brandenburg Gate and there was great chaos out there. West German students were standing on top of the wall, urging the East Germans to come across. The GDR students were nervous because they'd been shot if they do that in the past. It was uncertain about what would happen. Then the East German guards would hose down the West Germans and then kind of give up and then hose them down again. In the meantime, we had not yet seen anybody come through the wall because there was such chaos on the other side. They didn't know whether to do that or not. At uh, Hofstrader Bridge, the East Germans were beginning to stack up, and the guard there uh, couldn't raise anybody. The Politburo was all at home asleep, and he thought he was going to have to start shooting people, and he didn't want to do that on his own. Finally, 
about 15 minutes before we went on the air, he said, okay, they can go. And he started them across the bridge. We had a cameraman there who got all the footage that he could, took that footage, and he ran about four miles to get to us at 625, and we had the first footage. And so I came on the air at 630, and right before I said good evening, I said to the control room in New York, no script. There's chaos here. I'm just going to have to ad-lib it. You'll know when I want video to roll. And we did the whole half hour like that, and we kept updating it, and then we stayed on the air until about 2 in the morning. Wow. God damn. Uh, so... Um it was, so a big, there's this it, was, it was a big deal. Yeah. So there's this period of remarkable stability in in the three anchors. You know, you, you Peter Jennings, Dan Rather. You decide to write a book about the, and and the, you, where does the phrase "the greatest generation" come from? Moi. It was my. So how, how did well, how did that all come about? Well, because it came it, up, it came about. It, it give you the shortcut on uh, the 40th anniversary of D-Day, and when to do an hour documentary on it, thinking, you know, this is going to be wonderful. I grew up in that, uh, that generation raised me, obviously. And uh, we went over and I thought, God, north of France, I was training for a marathon. I'd be running through these beautiful hills. Seafood is great. I don't have to be on the air every night. And on the first day, I walked onto Omaha Beach. With two uh, People don't remember this, but, you know, people were smaller in those days. And a lot of the people who came into the services were malnourished. They were coming right out of the Depression. And when I would talk to them later, what do you remember about basic, uh, about basic uh, training? They'd say, the breakfast. I couldn't believe how much we had to eat. Or I got my first new pair of trousers. Never had a new pair. Two little guys from Pennsylvania, big red one uh, on the beach. One of them had lost both legs later in the war. The other one earned the Medal of uh, Honor. Very modest. And they were in the first wave. <clears throat> and um, I said, so you landed right about here. And they said, that's right. And I said, what happened when the ramp went down? They said, well, they shot my lieutenant and my sergeant through the head. Uh, we were all 18, 19 years old. Our leadership was gone at that point. We didn't know what to do. We'd been trained well. So we rushed off the thing, and he said, right about here, there was a tank trap, and we dropped down behind the tank trap. And we're terrified about what was going to happen to us. And he said, all of a sudden, we saw a colonel coming and running down the beach like he was out for a morning jog. And he leaned over, and he said, boys, there are two kinds of people on this beach. The dead and those about to be dead. You've got to move off the beach. I'd never heard about that colonel before. And later, I was just reading about him again last night. His name was Collins. He'd rehearsed that line because he'd landed in Italy, and he saw the chaos and the fear. So before he got to the beach, he thought, I've got to think of something to say to my men. And he also was not a guy who was rigid about uh, war plans. He'd say, use your own head. You know, innovate when you have to. So I'm just leveled by this conversation on the beach. And it was kind of a rainy day. I went back to a small cafe, and I was sitting there, and a big raw bone guy comes over to me, and he says, Tom, I'm Congressman Sam Gibbons from Florida. And I said, oh, Congressman, I know you. What are you doing here? And he pulled out a uh, cricket, uh, a brass clicker like a kid has. And he said, click, click. I was here 40 years ago. And I said, really? Can you talk about it? He said, well, yeah, I've never talked about it. But, and he started to tell me about how he jumped in as a lieutenant. He was 20 years old, spoke only Spanish, got separated from his outfit, used his clicker. What they did was click, click in the dark. And then if they got, uh, I'm sorry, they made a single click. And then if they got two clicks back, they, somebody was saying, I hear you, I'm coming. And that's how they formed up. So he puts together... 12 guys from different outfits, and they start, they think that the invasion has failed. They're behind enemy lines at this point. And he began to cry. And his wife came over and said, Sam, you don't have to do this. And he said, I've got to tell this story. She looked at me, she looked at me and said, we've been married for, I've never heard this before. Um, and at the end of that day, I thought, oh my God, there's so much we don't know. He comes back and be a congressman. Another one becomes a school teacher. Another one comes this. So I started collecting these stories, and I would use them in commencement addresses and other places. And on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and we went back and looked at this, Katie Couric on the Today Show said, what do you think? And I gave her, you know, they came out of the Great Depression. They asked to defeat the greatest army had ever been organized, and they saved the world. I think they're the greatest generation any society ever produced. 
And that became kind of my leitmotif when I would do commencement addresses. And uh, I was working on another book at Random House, and uh, I had so many of these stories. Uh, this is a book. So I went to my editor, and they said, stop whatever you're doing. We need it a year from now, which is, a, as you know, very short notice. Right. I got a terrific researcher to work with me, and we slammed it together over the course of the next year. It was written in 1998. I promise you, there is not a week that goes by that someone doesn't come up to me three times or four times a week and say, most important book I've ever read. I was in Aspen recently. I got up very early in the morning to go to my favorite little coffee house there. And there was a typical Aspen coffee waitress. You know, She had a stocking cap on, and she was very cheerful, bouncing around. And we all put in our orders. And I was wearing a cap. Oh, she has no idea. I don't think about this, but I thought, can't know who I am. And I got my order, and I started out. She said, oh, Mr. Broca, greatest generation most important book of my life. And I, my God, in 19 years old, I'm sure, that goes on all the time. And so it was the most meaningful thing I've ever done. Do you think that they were really a better generation than we are, or did circumstances make them a better generation? Circumstances. I, what I, you know, people were always challenge it, and, and they weren't perfect. You know, we, there are members of that generation who launched us into Vietnam, for example. But as I often point out, members of that generation were also the leading opponents of Vietnam. Circumstances. First, the Depression. That's made, that made them who they were because everything was about sacrifice and working together and not expecting anything that you didn't earn on your own. And then, and, and it was also a can-do generation. You know, my dad and his friends if they could avoid buying anything and they make it themselves, that's what they did. I had a lawn mowing business when I was 12 years old. I wanted to go to Sears and buy a new power lawnmower with my savings. My father built me a power lawnmower. That's not easy to do. It was ugly as hell, but it worked for the next five years. And everything that generation did, they did with their hands and they, were, and they did things together. So I do believe uh, and also, their modesty has something to do with it. I'll take 15 seconds to tell you a quick story. It's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving to me. When I was in the seventh grade, living in a construction town in the middle of nowhere, uh, we got this new teacher. He was a tall, stern Dane. Uh, he was only 27 years old, it turns out. When I look back on it, he wore a suit to school every day, and he wore a hat when he was not uh, in the class. And he taught history and English in an entirely different way in a rural school. You know, most of the teachers said, memorize Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and, and, and remember Manifest Destiny. We're the greatest country in the world, and that's what our history tells us. He came in and said, we're going to learn history through the words and the experiences of the people who lived it. Broca, you're going to memorize Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and, you're going to, and then you're going to recite it to the class, and one line by line, we're going to go through it. What was he thinking? What prompted him to say this? What did it mean at the time? And the rest of the year was like that. And it was a very vigorous approach to scholarship for working class kids in the seventh grade. Made a big impression on me. And then he left at the end of the year. And I often thought about him because I thought he probably went off and became a deacon in the Lutheran church somewhere or maybe a banker or something. And then I began to hear that he dedicated his life to teaching in Iowa, that he'd been admitted to law school, but he wanted to be a teacher. So he died this past year. And people who knew that we had a kind of distant relationship sent me his obituary. And I'm reading the obituary down. Halfway through it says, Harlan Holm had six battle stars in World War II. He fought in North Africa. He had made two landings in Italy. He invaded France. And he crossed the Elba as a construction engineer to get the pontoon bridge over so that we could go into Germany. Not a peep about any of that. And that was so typical. Hmm. Um, before we, you know, before we close, do you think a, a young journalist today could have a career like yours? I do. Um, I, I see them all the time. I'm very proud of the team we've assembled at, uh, at NBC. We have the Road Warriors. Those of you who watch Lester, you know, we've got all these terrific women. Uh, and they're very, very good at what they do. Uh, and they're the new generation coming out. And they take no prisoners in their political coverage. And they're, they haven't been at home in nine months. And they've been living on airplanes and buses all across the country. 
There is no better foreign correspondent in, the, in our world today than Richard Engel. Uh, he is as good as they come. Uh, I, I always thought it was a huge mistake for ABC to lose him, frankly. He was working for them as a freelancer during the war, and then he came into play, as we put it, and he came to see me. Uh, I didn't know him at the time, but he spoke Arabic. I knew that. He'd gone to Cairo right out of Stanford to learn Arabic on the street because he could see that's where the news was going. And I said to him three things. I said, uh, you need to get better as a broadcaster. We've got cable. We can put you on the air all day, every day, and you'll get better at that, and you need to do that. Um, the second thing is that Peter Jennings uh, spent the early and important part of his career in the Middle East. It'll be very hard for you to get on with what you want to say because Peter will have more to say about it than you will. <laughs> and then finally, I'm going to be leaving here. I'm going to, I knew then that I was going to step away from Nightly News, but I'll always be here for you. You know, because I'm not going to leave NBC, and so I'll be here for you. I, that was my Hail Mary, thinking maybe we can get him. I couldn't imagine that ABC would let him go. Uh, and he's a rock star in that world. Um, we have several questions about this. You know, news, certainly cable news, um, has become more opinionated in recent years. I mean, when you, in most of your time... Um, you know, the, the, the networks were accused of bias in various ways, but by and large, I think people would agree it was a pretty, you, you pretty did straight, straight yep. news. Do you, what, what do you think the future is? More in the direction of partisanship or less? Well, I, what I think is that um, the, what is the underreported part of what's going on now is social media. Social media is a huge force in this political coverage that is going on, and it's unregulated, and it's very hard to get a handle on what is being said there, because it's very hard. It comes so fast, and it stays in place. You know, I, I think a lot of these people who are, in effect, throwing what I call metaphorical hand grenades uh, across the political landscape are guys who couldn't get a date for the prom. They're sitting in their underwear somewhere in the basement, and I'm going to get even with everybody, and they can look like they've got a huge following. We don't know that they do. Look, cable is opinionated, you know, on MSNBC uh, six to nine in the morning, MJ, Morning Joe, is opinionated. Then it's straight until the evening when the uh, you know Chris Matthews and, and Gretchen and, and Lawrence O'Donnell come on. They've got opinions. Fox plays it pretty straight during the day. You know, you can kind of see where they're going to go. But they're very competitive on covering the news, like the current hurricane. So uh, I think that we'll continue to have that. If I were starting over again, I would probably go to uh, an enterprise that has duality, like Bloomberg. Um, I like. I think digital is going to be a hugely important part of it. They've got television and they've got time. You know, they're not constrained by uh, primetime programming. For example, they're in the news business. That would be, I think, a, a good place to go to work again. I'm, I made the right call at the right time and, and uh, just broke a good fortune. I came along at the right time when they were looking for a lot of people to fill the air and, and, and television news grew exponentially as I was involved in them. But the evening news, you know, I, I sometimes do a little experiment. And, you know, when you and Peter and Dan were the anchors, I would say you had close to universal name recognition. Yeah. Um, if you, you can add, even a group like this, ask yourself, who are the anchors for ABC, CBS and NBC at this moment? It, it's hard. It, a lot of people find that a very hard, hard thing to yeah. do. Um, do you think the evening news which you are so associated with, will survive in its current form? I, I, I think it will be, um, I don't want to say less important, I think it will be, um, a, it will be a smaller part of the big television landscape. I think that there will always be, at the end of the day, a room for a, a broadcast that assembles the most important things that happen. I do think, and we talk about this at the office, when I'm, I've been sick for a couple of years. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm in remission. But there was a couple of years it was kind of touch and go, and I was at home a lot watching everything. And uh, and in watching it, uh, I was so struck. I knew exactly what was going on in the NBC Nightly News newsroom. They were showing me everything I'd seen all day long. You know, the, the stuff that you saw at 10 o'clock in the morning, you were seeing again at 6 o'clock at night, as if they had just discovered it. Now, in a newsroom, what happens is they'll sit around and they'll be concentrating on their own broadcast. They won't be watching all that cable. And they'll say, well, we've got to get this in 
or it'll happen like, oh my God, we've got to get that in. I say, have courage. Stand back. What's most important today? And how do you bring a different approach to what is going on? Do more interpretive stuff and play outside the boundary from time to time. Surprise people with what you're doing. But uh, I get it. They're under enormous pressure to produce ratings, to get a program on the air at 6.30 at night and have it look good from 6.30 to 7. You know, I often say, uh, I fly a lot in there. You know, the planes are late. And they say, well, you don't understand. I said, I work in a complicated business. We're on the air at 6.30 every night. You know, we don't have to land the plane, but we've got crews in war zones and we've got satellites. Then You ought to be able to get the damn airplane off the ground. <laughs> so... I think it'll be there for a while. How long? I don't know. How the whole landscape changes? I don't know. I think that digital will be ever more important uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's economical. Donald Trump changed politics in America in a lot of ways, but one of them is he didn't go out and buy a lot of television time. He tweeted. He just went on digital and tweeted. That's a big, big change. Well, now that you mention it... um... (laughs) What, what do you make of uh, the, the Trump campaign? <laughs> well, it, it's a game changer uh, in a lot of ways. Now, does it, does it last? I don't know. Uh, is he unique because of the time? He caught the country just when it was, in the words of one of my favorite river guys in the West, which is the, uh, he talks about difficult clients, and he says they're half-cocked in the ticked-off position, but he doesn't say ticked-off. He, he used the other phrase. And Donald Trump came along with the country who was half-cocked in a ticked-off position. Moreover, he was better known than any of the other candidates by far because he was a big reality television star and his whole life has been sent, spent in self-promotion. Then he used Tweet and Twitter. And he broke all the rules at a time when people were prepared to have them broken. You know, I, I liken his, uh, his approach to politics the same as the two guys sitting at the end of the bar after closing time uh, and and what they have to say about the world. That's kind of, Trump speaks their language. By God, it's broken. we got to change. we got to fix this. And he can be in utter denial about um, not just the conventional way you run a campaign, but the consequences of what you say. You know, you think about what he has been saying and then put him in the Oval Office and dealing with the Middle East, for example, or going up against Putin or trying to do a trade deal with China in some fashion. Uh, it's being president of the United States, the single most complicated job in the world, and it does require some sophisticated knowledge. There were two or three times that I thought the country was never going to be able to buy this, but they did. At one point, he was asked, could he handle the pressure of being in the Oval Office? And he said, handle the pressure? I've won two golf championships. I know about pressure. <laughs> Um, and, and what do you make of Hillary Clinton? Well, I've known her a long time. Uh, I met her when she was first lady of Arkansas. Uh, she's always been uh, very ambitious politically, very canny. And there are two Hillary Clintons. There's the one that you see in public, you know, who can be uh, very kind of stern in her approach to things. Uh, I can't use the word strident when talking about women anymore because it becomes a sexist phrase. But it's uh, because it is actually. Yeah, right. So, so there's that Hillary Clinton, and then you do the flip, and there's the other Hillary Clinton who is. I've had two researchers work for me on books who work for her because uh, I, she had the pool of the best people I've ever seen working with her at all times, and they would talk about one of them would be on a ship from six until ten at her house working on a project, and then they would go home at ten and. And the 10 to midnight crowd would be coming in. And she treated them all with great courtesy. My own recent personal example is that I have known her well for a long time, but I can still stand back and cover her as a reporter because I think she has flaws as a candidate up up to this point. But I was in New Hampshire this year, uh, and she was in our studio doing a crosstalk with somebody. And I went over to say hello to her, and she turned around and said, became a different person and said, Tom, I love your book about having cancer. It's called A Lucky Life Interrupted, about the experience. And I said, well, that's so nice. And she said it was moving, it was important, and it was instructive. And, uh, I wonder if she read the whole thing. So I picked out something from the back end of the book. And I said, you know, when I was dealing with this, she said, you nailed it. That, that, that incident that you described was so telling. And I thought, she did read it all. And that's the other Hillary Clinton. Um, 
and you think she's been in the public arena for 30 years, and all that she's been through with her husband, and, with the, and people have such strong feelings about her for and against her, and she's still standing in a lot of ways. I thought she was the best I've ever seen her when she did the first debate. Uh, I thought somebody had gotten to her. Before that, I thought she had a change, and her campaign team did as well. They, they thought she had not uh, closed the deal with the American public about why she was running for president. It was just like it was her turn. Um, I have a, a daughter who is a big Hillary fan, and she said to me, Dad, she said, has got 30 years. I said, yeah, but the 30 years don't count when you're running for president. You don't go back and say, I'm running because i got 30 years of experience. You've got to have a vision. You've got to have an idea that you can convey to people and that they buy into. And I think that still is the test for it. But I did think the other night uh, against him, and especially the contrast, I thought that she was as good as I've ever seen her as a candidate. I'm an umpire. I call balls and strikes. I, you know, I can find flaw uh, across the board, even with people that I care about. You may not be in the greatest generation, but you're pretty great. So please thank Tom Brokaw for our uh, joining us here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.